Right. Okay. Let us do the thing. All right. Let's do the thing. Oh, my. Drew Jostad wasting no time. Welcome, everyone, to another week here at Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. I'm Kimberly Adams. I'm Kyle Rosdahl. We're only mildly disheveled today. You never know it, though. (laughs) Trained audio professionals. Thanks for joining us on a Monday. We're going to dive into the news fix. Then we'll do a story or two maybe that makes us smile. And then we will get out of your way. Uh, Okay. Uh, I'll go first just because I got a bazooka. Go for it. You ready? Okay. Mm. So I know it's four links in the rundown, but really it's only only one and a half little observations here. So number one, from the pages of the New York Times today, all the news that's fit to print, the biggest duh headline in the history of headlines, Republican votes helped Washington pile up debt. Look. Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. (laughs) It's killing me. It's killing me. So look, the president is dropping his budget this week. That's why this headline, I think, is in the paper. That's why this article is in the paper by by Jim Tankersley, who we should hasten to point out, reporters do not write their own headlines. And Tankersley is talking about the amount of public debt that we have, which has been piled up by Republican and Democratic Congresses and administrations. That's it. I just want to make sure everybody understands this. That when you hear uh, uh, Speaker McCarthy and when you hear Lena McConnell and when you hear other leading figures in the GOP say it's always the Democrats who want to spend American taxpayers' money, the facts don't bear that out. And I just want everybody to know that. That's all. That's it. That's my little rant. I just, it bugs me. Well, and it's it's not exactly balanced either in recent history no. Oh, no. in terms yeah. of yeah. who has contributed no. to the debt. It is actually a little bit more on the Republican side. A lot more. It's overwhelmingly more. The last two Republican uh, presidents have accumulated an enormous share of the outstanding debt of the, Amer- the United States. It's it's not even close. So, and oh, we're talking that? over two hundred forty something years. You know. Yeah, I was. I just remember. Um, you know, we did so much coverage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and mm-hmm. you did that hour long special. Yes. And I remember we're going through it, and we're like. This is going to cost so much, so much money. money. And so they kept being like, oh, it, it's it's going to stimulate the economy and this is all going to come back. And every economist yep. was like, no, it's not. <laughs> yep. And it didn't. Yep. And it didn't. It's amazing. It's okay. Amazing. What's this uh, other okay. one? Item, item number two, for which I have three links in the rundown, and that's really just to explain to Kimberly what's going on, as opposed to those of you listening to this who don't really need to know how many items I have in the rundown. So, Jay Powell <laughs> is going to Capitol Hill Tuesday and Wednesday to deliver what is known as the Humphrey Hawkins testimony. It's testimony uh, required by the Humphrey Hawkins Act of 1978, which I'll get to in a minute, that requires that the Federal Reserve Chair go up to Congress twice a year and update them on the current status of the economy and the Federal Reserve's policies to help that economy grow and develop. The reason I bring it up is because until about 10 days ago, I had not understood or known a really interesting part of the history of the Humphrey Hawkins Act. So the Mm. Humphrey Hawkins Act is technically known as the Full Employment and Balanced Growth Act of 1978. And when we talk about it in terms of the Federal Reserve today, it's almost always in the context of this law, the Humphrey Hawkins Act, the Full Employment and Balanced Growth Act of 1978, is where the idea of the Fed's dual mandate comes from. That is to stay stable prices and maximum employment. You hear Fed reporters, you hear Federal Reserve officials, you hear sometimes Congress people talk about the Fed's dual mandate. What's really interesting about this historically are, are two facts. Number one, Coretta Scott King was instrumental 
in getting this act passed. And I did an interview about two weeks ago with a professor of history out at UCLA in which we talked about the Civil Rights Act as an economic movement. And he Mm -hmm. told me, pointed out to me, that it was Coretta Scott King, after her husband was murdered, who helped transition the civil rights movement to a more explicit, as the civil rights movement was, in fact, becoming more political, right, in the 1960s and 70s. She kept it the focus on the economic part of it, and she's the one who helped the two members of Congress, Augustus Hawkins and Hubert Humphrey, in the Senate and the, uh, the House and Senate, respectively, get this act through Congress. And I think that's just an amazing little piece of historical interest, that Coretta Scott King helped this act become law, and I just think that's really cool. Now, so that's item number one. Item number two, number two is actually. that— what? That was item number two, so this is like 2.5. Oh, all right, so this is 2.5. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Item number 2.5 is this. We talk about the, the Humphrey-Hawkins Act as mandating uh, stable prices and maximum employment. Read the title of the bill, people. Full Employment and Balanced Growth Act of 1978. Nowhere does it say Full Employment and Stable Prices Act of 1978. The emphasis of Congress in the early 70s, as they were talking about this act, then in 1978 when it passed, was full employment. And you're going to hear a lot, especially from progressive members of Congress the next two days, about the Federal Reserve hiking interest rates too fast in order to promote stable prices at the expense of the labor market, right? And thus not upholding the actual premise of this act, full employment. I just, it's really interesting. History's cool. That's what I got. This is even more fascinating when you consider a lot of the, you know, reporting we've been doing over the years about what full employment has actually meant in practice, where even when unemployment in the United States is, air quotes, low, we still have Mm -hmm. black unemployment persistently double what Mm -hmm. white unemployment is. And Mm -hmm. so to hear that Coretta Scott King was so instrumental in getting this done with the emphasis on full employment and to be in a place now or to this day, full employment is still not inclusive of full employment of black Americans is wow. Yep. Yep. Wow, 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 wow. Okay. Go ahead. Yes. I'm going to be sitting with that one for a while. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Mm-hmm. Mine is a Washington Post story. I kind of was like twofer on the Washington Post today. But it gets back to something that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago in the deep dive about, you know, sort of industrial policy and oh, yeah. how the United States under the Biden administration is being much more intentional about You know, we talked sort of about the made in America slice of this, right? The idea that more of these items that are important for the growth of our economy need to be made in the United States. And the Biden administration is pushing for all this stuff to be made in the U.S. and what that means for global trade and for, you know, how growth works in the United States. The Washington Post has a very interesting story about what this shift in the Biden administration strategy actually represents in terms of the role of the federal government in the economy more broadly. Because Mm. for decades, we have had the sort of implicit idea that the free market, that capitalism is the best way to shape 
where America is going to experience growth. If, you know, factories are in decline, it's bad, maybe we'll do some retraining. But for the most part, we got to just let it go because that's what, you know, the economy is doing. And that's what the free market says. We're going to just like let it run and not too many backstops to it. But now we have the federal government in a very intentional way deciding what sectors of the economy need to grow and investing heavily in those sectors with the intense goal of saying, this is where our economy needs to be in a way that's much more intentional than in previous administrations. So that looks like building out the EV charging infrastructure and the CHIPS Act and all of this investment in green energy. Whereas before, maybe you might, you know, encourage businesses to, you know, hire more workers or, you know, give a little tax credit or something like that to try to incentivize businesses to do it. Whereas now the Biden administration is like, no, you have to do this and you have to do it here and you have to do it this way with these qualifications. And we're only going to, you know, give this money or we're going to give preference to companies that aren't doing stock buybacks. And if you want some of this chips money, you have to have child care on site or help your people have childcare. This is just a lot bigger of a role of the federal government in shaping mm-hmm. how the economy grows than we've seen in recent history. And this piece kind of laid it out in a very interesting way. Yeah, it's uh, there was a lot of talk in the beginning of the Biden administration about how he was going to change the way the government interacts with this economy. And now you're seeing it, you know, two, a little more than two plus years later, you're seeing it happen. It's, it's, it's a big deal, actually. It's a big deal. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Uh, Let's smile. Let's do it. Trip. All right. Mine's quick. It comes with a very. It it comes with a very brief family anecdote. When when I was a little kid and my dad would go back to Europe on business, he would always bring back um, some kind of candy bar, and more often than not, it was Toblerone because they were fun to eat. They had the triangles, and you broke it off, and this and that, and it was just fun. And also yummy chocolate. Well, uh, as Kimberly knows, because she talked about this on the radio show today while she was doing my job, while I did some other stuff, um, Toblerone is outsourcing some of its manufacturing, and thus it has fallen afoul of Swiss laws mandating Swissness. That is to say, sufficiently uh, being of the Swiss identity to be able to use Swiss um, uh, icons in its marketing, specifically the Matterhorn on the Toblerone, Toblerone, Toblerone box, right? So now, yeah, now Toblerone is going to have to take the Matterhorn off because it's moving some of its uh, manufacturing to like Bratislava in Slovakia. So uh, (laughs) it's a global economy. We only live in it. That's all I'm saying. I have to tell you how many times I had to say Toblerone before the show today. (laughs) And I, Sean, our director, I was like, Sean, you have to help me because my brain wants to say Toblerone and it's Toblerone. And I don't know why my brain does not want to put the B before the L there. And it's Toblerone. And I wanted to say Toblerone for some reason. I don't know. It just feels Anyway, it's a cute little story. Cute little story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep. Speaking there of family anecdotes, uh, I uh, went on a nice long hike with my uncle this weekend, and he was very excitedly telling me about all of these new baby chickens he recently mm-hmm. bought um, because there was a 
terrible incident where some animal got into his backyard and it was just a massacre and he lost a lot of his animals. Um, But he has now replaced them and he got all these chicks and he was showing me pictures and he's very excited and he's very happy. And so then I see this uh, story in the Washington Post also today about how because egg prices have gotten to be so high a lot of new people are trying to get into chicken farming or into backyard chicken raising. And so little baby chicks are like selling out everywhere. There's lines at the tractor supply. And, you know, some people aren't quite ready for the level of um, excrement involved in in raising chickens. And it reminds me of kind of early in the pandemic uh, well, we're still in the pandemic. Um, early in the days, days of the pandemic when people were like, oh, well, since I'm going to be home, I'm going to just do a little mini homestead in my backyard. And they were like a rush on like fancy chicken coops and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, it's a cute story. There are many puns in it and it entertained me <laughs> and made me smile. So that's what and I've sometimes got. Sometimes that's all you want is to be Sometimes entertained. that's all you need on a Monday. That's right. Just, that's right. just we just are a little, done. little lightness. Yeah. On this yeah. Monday, we're done. Back tomorrow uh, with our Tuesday show, Single Topic, Longer Interview. This week, we're talking uh, with food historian Ana Zeta about her new book, U.S. History in 15 Foods. We're going to talk about foods like Spam and Green Bean Casserole, which I loved when I was a kid, but now somehow repulses me, by the way. <laughs> What all that has to, I don't know, I don't know how to explain that. Anyway, has to do with major moments in our country's history and our economy, just, you know, for something a little different on the pod. Yeah, because we, we want to get, get it light sometimes on these deep dives. Uh, until then, you can keep sending us your emails and voice messages. You can reach us at 508-UB-SMART. You can also email us uh, words or voice memo at makemesmart mm-hmm. at marketplace.org. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Today's program was engineered by Drew Jost. Ed Alan Rolf is writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonio Barreras. Marissa Cabrera is our acting senior producer. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. And Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. Have you ever had chickens? No, no man. No man. Not my jam either. No. I don't like eggs, actually. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.